When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Okay, today's uh, piece is interesting to me. It's something that I hold near and dear to my heart. It's actually the backbone of the philosophy of my approach to botanical-style aquariums. There's something I've come to embrace since I've been playing with these systems. I like to limit the number of elements that I use. You're like, huh? What does that mean? Well, yeah, despite having access to an incredible array array of botanicals over the years, I found that it's more appealing to my personal tastes and to the the, uh, ideas that I work with to utilize a less diverse selection of materials in a given aquarium. I've talked about this with some of you before. Uh, I don't think I've ever really mentioned it much in uh, in a podcast or a blog. And it's not just the aesthetic thing that motivates me to do this. It's based on some of the environments that I've studied. In many of the habitats we study, you'll find multiple botanical elements like leaves, seed pods, and twigs. However, the density and combination is profoundly influenced by a number of things. First off, the terrestrial environment surrounding the aquatic habitats. In a dense jungle or rainforest, you're likely to see a diversity of materials. In a flooded savanna or a vernal pool, you might see less materials overall, as the density of materials is influenced primarily by what's on the ground already when the water returns. Number two is the season. During certain times of the year in many locales, there's a greater density of materials falling into the water because various trees are shedding leaves and dropping seed pods or fruit. Or you'll see more botanicals in a given body of water because the water level is lower and these materials are more concentrated. Makes sense. Number three, weather conditions. Wet, windy weather will typically result in more materials being swept into the water as well as larger volume and higher velocity of water. So you might see more stuff being moved through in areas of higher water volume, only accumulated in little pockets here and there. And then number four, one of the more interesting ones is the underwater topography. And it's interesting in these transitional environments that are terrestrial and then become aquatic in flood, you know, flood seasons, the depth, the bottom contours, and the overall physical structures of a lake, a stream, or uh, even a flooded forest or river, uh, or even a meadow for that matter, profoundly influence the way materials accumulate and how they accumulate. Stream features like riffles and bends and uh, oxbow lakes and all kinds of things like that can serve to accumulate leaf litter banks and to create natural dams caused by fallen trees or accumulations of rocks or plants or whatever. There's like a whole area of science devoted to this sort of underwater topography stuff. It's really interesting and it can give you tons of ideas for creating an amazing aquarium system. So do some research on that beyond what you see in the aquarium hobby stuff or the biotope contests websites or things like that. Actually do some homework and you'll find some amazing stuff. To show you just how geeked out I am about this stuff, I've literally spent hours pouring over scientific papers, the videos, pictures, and screenshots, and interrogating my friends who have visited certain habitats I'm interested in. Uh, For example, in the agapo habitats that you know I'm obsessed with. I've literally counted the number of leaves versus other botanical items in the shots just to sort of get a leaf to botanical ratio that's common in these ecosystems. Uh, That's geeked out. Although different areas would obviously vary based on the pics I've analyzed visually, 
and places I've seen and so forth, it works out to about 70% leaves to about 30% other botanical items. Interesting to me, maybe not to you, but I think it's pretty cool. The trees, or more specifically their parts, literally bring new life into the waters. Some are present when the waters begin rising. Others continue to arrive after an area is flooded, falling off forest trees or tumbling down from the banks by a stream, uh, into a stream by wind or rain. Terrestrial trees also play an important role in removing, utilizing, and returning nutrients to the aquatic habitat. They remove some nutrient from the submerged soils and return some in the form of leaf drop. Now, interestingly, studies show that about 70% of the leaf drop from the surrounding trees in the agapo habitats occurs when the area is submerged, but the bulk of that is shedded at the end of the inundation period. That's interesting to me. The falling leaves gradually decompose and they become part of the detritus in the food web, which is essential for many species of fishes. This late inundation leaf drop also set things up for the next round, providing a starter set of nutrients, doesn't it? Interesting. The materials that comprise the trees are known in the ecology as allochthonous material, something imported into an ecosystem from outside of it. You've heard me use this a lot, and extra credits to you if you can pronounce the word on the first try. It took me a few. And of course, in the case of trees, this also includes leaves, fruits, and seed pods that fall or are washed into the water along with branches and trunks that topple into streams and forest floors that become flooded. You know, the stuff we obsess over around here. In fact, if you look at it objectively, everything that we add to our aquariums in it is in essence allochthonous material. These allochthonous materials support a diverse food chain that's almost entirely based on our old friend, detritus. Yes, detritus again, sworn enemy of the traditional aquarium hobby, misunderstood bearer of life in the aquatic habitat. Yeah, the detritus not only forms part of the food chain in these systems, which is a very important part in the diet of many of our beloved fishes, it's a literal physical structure that provides an area for fishes to forage, hide, and in some instances even spawn among. It's a combination of elements, terrestrial and aquatic, all working together. Now, many other you know, fishes which reside in these flooded forest areas and overflowing streams feed mainly on insects, specifically small ones such as beetles, spiders, and ants from the forest canopy. The insects are likely dislodged from the overhanging trees by wind and rain, and the opportunistic fishes like hatchet fishes and surface-dwelling uh, kerosens and so forth are always ready for a quick meal. And they're, interestingly enough, it's been postulated that the reason the Amazon has so many small fishes is that they evolved as a response to the opportunities to feed on the insects that are served up by the flooded forest in which they reside. Makes sense. These little guys do a lot better job of eating small insects which fall in the water than the larger clumsy guys like, you know, Colossoma and Paku and all those who are more adept uh, or more adapted to it to snapping up nuts and fruits with those big gnarly mouths that they have. And yes, some species of fishes specialize in detritus. Yep, detritus again. As if we, uh, you know, if we as aquarium hobbyists study the natural habitats of our fishes as diligently as some do the results of last year's aquascaping contest, it's easy to see that the word natural, as we use it in the aquarium world, is really a perversion of the term. You'll realize that natural aquatic habitats really look like they think we do, and often rely on functions, processes, and materials, which we tend to think more of as a nuisance than anything else, like detritus and sediments. We need to get over our hobby acculturated fear of these things. In well-managed, well-thought-out aquariums, these elements are as important and functional as they are in the natural habitats that we model them after. They power an entire community of organisms, which influences the stability, the formation, and the health of fish communities. The seasonal shift from terrestrial aquatic to aquatic, excuse me, is 
remarkable. It's an incredible dynamic with these amazing processes that are pretty well worth studying and, and even replicating in our aquariums. As we've discussed more times than you likely care to remember, decomposing leaves are the basis of the food chain, and they produce uh, the material that forms an extremely part of the diet for many, many species of fishes. Some have even adapted morphologically to feed on detritus produced by these habitats. In, by developing those like bristle-like teeth to remove this material from branches, tree trunks, plants, stems, and other leaf, you know, and other parts of the leaf litter bed. Of course, it's not just the fishes which derive benefits from the terrestrial materials which find their way into the water. Bacteria, fungi, and algae also act upon the nutrients released into the water by decomposing organic material uh, and by acting on that stuff and utilizing it to grow. Plants, known collectively to science as macrophytes, grow in or near water and are either emergent, submerged, or floating and play a role in sort of filtering the flooded forest habitats in nature as well. Many are simply terrestrial grasses, which have adapted to survive underwater for extended periods of time. This is where we start talking about that urban agapo stuff that I've been playing with. This adds to the diversity of materials, both living and dead, in these really compelling habitats. It's a most interesting combination of elements, a most compelling model. It's the most fascinating example of a functionally aesthetic environment that you can duplicate in your home aquarium. Think about the environment. It's external influences, particularly the external influences, the conditions and the life forms that make use of it the next time you're conjuring up ideas for a new tank. It just might help you create one of the most amazing aquariums you've ever built. This function versus form. The function will dictate the form and how things look. And there's a lot, really, a lot to unpack there. In my experience, the utilization of just a few elements allowed to accumulate, decompose, and function as they do in nature do incredible things. Or incredible things. What am I saying? <laughs> For example, my experiments with botanical-style self-feeding aquariums, you know, leaf litter-only tanks, twig-only tanks, um, fungal growth tanks, decomposition tanks, all the kind of crazy stuff I've been playing with, just a few botanical elements slowly decomposing, recruiting fungal growths, recruiting biofilms and detritus have helped me create some very different-looking yet smooth-functioning closed aquatic ecosystems. I've been able to raise fry. I've been able to discontinue feeding of some species of fishes during these experimental periods. The mixing of terrestrial and aquatic elements is also one which has and will continue to yield some very, very interesting productive aquariums. I've read a number of species of fries in these uh, fry in these fusion systems, like killifish, for example, with remarkable success and limited, if any, supplemental feeding in some cases. I've done this with annual killifish, like some of the South American annuals and a few African annuals, like Nothobranchius, where I haven't fed anything until their juvenile phase, where they actually look like fishes. So something's getting them through there. It's production from their little closed ecosystem. The beauty of all this stuff, besides just the sheer fascination and is yet to be fully appreciated benefits, is that we're still very much on the ground floor and experimenting with these unique approaches to botanical-style aquariums. Like many of the ideas we discuss here, we all have the amazing opportunity to contribute to this growing body of knowledge about this stuff. Don't be afraid. Be motivated and inspired. Stay part of this. Stay intrigued. Stay curious. Stay thoughtful. Stay diligent. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.